Heavenly Father, we thank you for the witness of the prophets that you have raised up um, throughout uh, the history of this world. Um, And Lord, we thank you for this time together um, to read uh, in the scriptures about the prophet Ezekiel. Um, We ask that you would give us ears to hear his word uh, to his people in his day and also um, ears to hear how you are speaking that word into our lives and hearts here in the present. And Lord, we ask all these things in Jesus' name and in the power of your spirit. Amen. Amen. Excellent. Well, I'm so glad you're here, and um, I suspect that people who are here were not here last week because you're here. So <laughs> a quick, um, a quick uh, uh, recap Uh, very briefly, of what we were looking at last week. Last week, we explored um, the vision that the prophet Ezekiel had. And we discussed one of the things that if you you encounter Ezekiel in the lectionary, you get chapter 37 uh, about the dry bones being raised up, and it's a beautiful picture that that prefigures the resurrection that God promises us uh, through Jesus. And today would be a logical day to talk about it, but I'm not going to because there's a good chance you'll hear about it elsewhere. And the rest of Ezekiel never crops up in the Sunday lectionary at all. So if you want to hear Ezekiel, you have to seek him out. And Ezekiel is a very unusual prophet. I think that's part of why uh, we don't get as much attention uh, uh, on him in in sort of the typical sort of day-to-day pattern of church life. Uh, Ezekiel is a priest... Um, He is uh, a priest who's very committed to temple worship in a way that is distinct uh, from other prophets. He's the priestliest of all the prophets, and most of the prophets weren't priests. They spent a lot of time criticizing the priests. So we see Ezekiel has an unusual biography to be uh, called, to be a prophet of God. And then what we usually see with prophets is that they they speak a word of prophecy, (laughs) But Ezekiel, bizarrely, God calls him to be a prophet and then shuts his mouth and prevents him from speaking. Well, that seems like it's going to be an obstacle to fulfilling prophecy in the usual way. And so Ezekiel, um, actually, I like to call him the performance artist prophet. He, he comes and he enacts different things so that um, the community um, can learn what God is is telling them. And in this particular instance, in this moment, there is a very, uh, the, the, the title of last week's class was, uh, what was it? It was or, uh, Ezekiel's Oracles um, Amid Political Catastrophe. And that's precisely the environment into which Ezekiel was called. Because we heard in, in, in Second Kings that the Babylonians came and they conquered um, Israel and they took all the all the craftsmen, all the bureaucrats, all the courtesans, everyone except for just the farmers of the land, basically, uh, the landowners even, they were all taken away, and they were taken into exile in Babylon. And so Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian king, got a relative of his, whom it was renamed Zedekiah for the purpose, uh, so he had a good, you know, more uh, you know, Jewish-sounding name, um, and he was set up as the puppet king, back in Jerusalem. So there's a remnant of Jews who are still back in the land, but the sort of uh, the elite class, if you will, all the folks who are, who are 
um, educated and um, who sort of are, are living off of the surpluses that the, that the folks th that remained um, generated, they're all taken away and they're in Babylon. And so what Ezekiel does is he acts out the experiences of the, what it's like in Jerusalem before the people in Babylon, the exiles. And similarly, the Lord takes him up in a whirlwind and he goes to uh, the land, to the remnant, and he acts out what it's like to be an exile. And he, and he, he it's, it is, it's like performance art. You know, he, he puts his, he acts out like he's a, a migrant and he puts all his baggage and he eats his food and trembling. And, and finally, um, at the very, uh, at the very end of what we were speaking about last time, we heard that Zedekiah, uh, not uh, that Ezekiel, Ezekiel's wife dies. And Ezekiel's wife is called the delight of his eyes. And God tells Ezekiel, do not mourn the death of your wife at all. And he doesn't say, don't feel sorry or sad. He just says, don't perform any of the ritual actions that would suggest that you cared about her. Because that's what it's going to be like when the temple, which was the delight of my people Israel, when the temple is destroyed, you're not going to care at all. You're not going to behave like it is the destruction of a beloved spouse. So act out for the people what the destruction, the coming destruction, is going to look like. And of course, it bothered them very much. You know, there's no etiquette. It's again, all, all the rules of etiquette to, to, to not mourn your own wife. I'd be alarmed if someone wasn't mourning a spouse. You know, what, what, was, what was with your relate? Are you, did you get the news? I mean, that's, that's disturbing. And so today... I'd like to focus a little bit more on the delight of Israel's eyes, um, the temple. And uh, one of the visions we didn't get to hear about, um, but I think it's a good way to come back into this story, is from Ezekiel chapter 8. Um, and I'm just going to read it to you. I like to just read and let the text speak. Um, and I think it's a, good, it's a good reintroduction because we hear something of the amazing vision of the presence of God that Ezekiel experiences, not in the inner sanctum of the temple where he's used to experiencing it as a priest, right? But rather on the, the, the banks of the, the Chabar Canal in Babylon, uh, that that's where God's presence comes. They think God lives in Israel. I mean, he lives in Jerusalem, right? He lives in the temple. And then suddenly this powerful vision comes to him in Babylon, and it says, God, its presence is on the move, just as you as a people are on the move. Um, so, 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 so just, and, and, and just finally uh, to say that the, those two cycles of, of showing the remnant what it's like to be in exile and then showing um, the exiles what it's like in Jerusalem, that was another you know, uh, a major part of those prophecies. They showed that even though the people were divided and they were starting to think like, you know, well, good riddance, those, those, those elite courtesans weren't any good anyway. <laughs> we're, we're in charge now. Or who needed those rubes in the, in, in, in the land? Um, I've been told not to say rubes, but I can't help myself. <laughs> um, and so uh, the, 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 what, what Ezekiel is showing is that they're one people, that they, they shouldn't turn against one another. Ezekiel shows them you're one people. But here to this remarkable vision. 
beginning the first verse of the eighth chapter. In the sixth year, in the sixth month, on the fifth day of the month, as I sat in my house with the elders of Judah sitting before me, the hand of the Lord God fell upon me there. Then I looked, and behold, a form that had the appearance of a man. Below what appeared to be his waist was fire, and above his waist was something like the appearance of brightness, like gleaming metal. He put out the form of a hand and took me by a lock of my head, and the Spirit lifted me up between earth and heaven and brought me in visions of God to Jerusalem, to the entrance of the gateway of the inner court that faces north, where was the seat of the image of jealousy which provokes to jealousy. And behold, the glory of the God of, the God of Israel was there, like the vision that I saw in the valley. That's the, the vision in the Chabar Valley. Then he said to me, Son of man, lift up your eyes now toward the north. So I lifted up my eyes toward the north, and behold, north of the altar gate, in the entrance, was this image of jealousy. And he said to me, Son of man, do you see what they're doing? The great abominations that the house of Israel are committing here to drive me far from my sanctuary? But you will see still greater abominations. And he brought me to the entrance of the court. And when I looked, behold, there was a hole in the wall. And then he said to me, Son of man, dig in the wall. So I dug in the wall, and behold, there was an entrance. And he said to me, Go in and see the vile abominations that they are committing there. So I went in and saw, and there engraved on the wall all around was every form of creeping things and loathsome beasts, and all the idols of the house of Israel. And before them stood 70 men of the elders of the house of Israel. With Jazaniah, the son of Saphon, standing among them, each had his censer in his hand, and the smoke of the cloud of the incense went up. And then he said to me, Son of man, have you seen what the elders of the house of Israel are doing in the dark, each in his room of pictures? For they say, The Lord does not see us. The Lord has forsaken the land. He said also to me, You will see still greater abominations that they commit. And then he brought me to the entrance of the north gate, of the house of the Lord, and behold, there sat women weeping for Tammuz. Then he said to me, Have you seen this, O son of man? You will still see greater abominations than these. And he brought me into the inner court of the house of the Lord. And behold, at the entrance of the temple of the Lord, between the porch and the altar, were about 25 men with their backs to the temple of the Lord and their faces east worshiping the sun toward the east. And then he said to me, Have you seen this, O son of man? Is it too light a thing for the house of Judah to commit the abominations that they commit here, that they should fill the land with violence and provoke me still further to anger? Behold, they put the branch to their nose, wherefore I will act in wrath. My eye will not spare, nor will I have pity. And though they cry in my ears with a loud voice, I will not hear them. What a remarkable vision to be in exile and thinking, back home, 
to be back in Jerusalem for a priest like Ezekiel to remember what it meant to serve the living God in his temple, to remember that, and then suddenly to be shown that the imagination of what what once was has been smacked down. It's been destroyed. The people have turned to other gods. And one of the interesting things about uh, Zedekiah is that he, he, he comes in as a puppet king, right? And, um, and so uh, he is, he, he's thought he's going to be loyal to the Babylonians, right? I mean, he's a relative of Nebuchadnezzar. But as is often the case, I mean, this happens, right? The puppet decides, you know, I kind of like being king. <laughs> and he starts... He starts getting invested in this idea that Israel is going to be great again, that it's going to be uh, a great nation, and never mind the fact that they had been punished for their iniquity, punished for their idolatry, and, and that, the, the, that there was this massive exile and taking of all the, all the uh, wealthiest and richest uh, people, the, the sort of the, the cultured class, into exile and into prison. And, they, and, they, and so... They, they say, well, we're going to, whatever works. We want to be, they remember King Josiah. They want to be like, I was so good when Josiah was king over Israel. One of the things about Josiah, I know I'm throwing names at you now, but, but bear with me here. Josiah was a great king who reformed the religious practices of Israel. He was a king who cherished the values of the nation of Israel, of being a chosen people of the Lord. He cherished God. And God rewards him. (laughs) And Israel has it good during Josiah's reign. And then gradually people fall away from those values. And so now the remnant thinks, we want to be strong and powerful. It was so good back when we had Josiah. So what do they do? Do they turn to the Lord and repent and try to live into the the values that, that Josiah lived into? No. They turn and they say, well, the Babylonians are not treating us the way we want. So they turn to the Egyptians. And they're worshiping any god that will do. This is what we see in this, you know, they're, 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 what a picture that in the inner sanctum of the temple, everyone is back to the altar and worshiping the sun god. <laughs> what a disgrace. How, how much have they lost sight of who they are as a people, as God's chosen people? They think it's about the power rather than about the values, rather than about who they are as a people whom God has looked on with favor and taught to honor the foreigner in their midst, taught to treat one another with justice and with righteousness. They've lost sight of all that. And so they're worshiping idols in the hopes of having pure power. And God happens to be sovereign and all-powerful, so he kills them all in the next chapter. Um, I'm not making that up. Um, And then in uh, chapter 10, uh, we hear, uh, and this is beautiful, read it, but we don't have time to read it here. But read chapter 10, because, and particularly if you didn't get to hear about the amazing vision of the presence of God that Ezekiel experiences there in Babylon. Ezekiel sees in this vision that the presence of God is on the move, right? First it's in the temple, and then it moves to the outer wall of the temple. And then you know, he describes the vision again. And then until it's over on the mountain, that progressively the presence of God is leaving 
the cho leaving the Holy Land. It's leaving his temple. And what good is a temple without the presence of the Lord God? That's a stupid thing. It's like, I mean, it's, it's like having a kitchen without anything in the pantry. And it's just a silly thing. Why would you need that? It's goofy. So here we have Ezekiel with this image, this image of the desecration, this vision of the, the presence of the Lord departing the temple that is so dear and cherished to who he is as a priest and who, to who Israel um, are, the Israelites are. That's why that felt funny grammatically. Who the Israelites are as a people, as God's chosen people, that, that, that the presence of the Lord is, is on the move and it's moving away. That's a frightening thing. That's a scary thing. And so um, here in, I want to turn now to the 17th chapter here. Um, and, oh, the, you know, I, I explained that already. But in the 17th chapter, at the 16th verse, we hear about what happened. And I'll, I'll read it because, you know, it's, it, you, I don't want you just to trust me. I want, you to, I want you to know that it's in the book. As I live, declares the Lord God, surely in the place where the king, this is King Zedekiah, dwells, who made him king, whose oath he despised, and whose covenant with him he broke. In Babylon he shall die. Pharaoh with his mighty army and the great company will not help him in war when mounds are cast up and siege walls are built to cut off many lives. He despised the oath in breaking the covenant. And behold, he gave his hand and did all these things. He shall not escape. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, as I live, surely it is my oath that he despised and my covenant that he broke. I will return it upon his head. I will spread my net over him, and he shall be taken in my snare, and I will bring him to Babylon and enter him into judgment with him there for the treachery he has committed against me. And all the pick of his troops shall fall by the sword, and the survivors shall be scattered to every wing, wind. And then you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken. So this is to remember that when the Babylonians come the first time, when Nebuchadnezzar comes, God, God kind of, he spares them a little bit, right? He says, you can take these guys into exile, but leave the city. Don't destroy the temple. Maybe a new group will be loyal to me. Maybe they'll turn back, right? He gives the Israelites another chance. And what does Zedekiah do with that chance? He turns to the Egyptians. He breaks the covenant that he made with his relative, Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, and, 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 and God is disappointed. So what's going to happen? Well, I mentioned that when Ezekiel's wife had died, and I, I know we're jumping around, um, but that when uh, Ezekiel's wife died uh, and he refused to mourn, um, and this is in uh, chapter 24 um, at, at, at the 15th verse, um, when, when his wife dies, um, he... He says, I'm not going to mourn. But then there's this remarkable thing that, that, he's, that, that happens, right? So he's not mourning the death of his wife. And, and the Lord says to him, As for you, son of man, surely on the day when I take them from their stronghold, their joy and glory, the delight of their eyes, this is the remnant in Jerusalem, the delight of their eyes and their soul's desire, and also their sons and daughters, on that day a fugitive will come to you to report to you on the news. On that day, your mouth will be opened and you shall speak and no longer be mute. So you will be assigned to them and they will know that I am the Lord. So what's happened is 
Zedekiah turns away. He, turn, he, 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 he goes into apostasy, and that second chance that was given was out the window. God, we heard God say, I'm coming with a net. I'm going to capture him. It's, that second chance is over. And sure enough, just as Ezekiel, Ezekiel keeps telling the people this is going to happen. And just as he predicts, a fugitive comes to him. And, um, and, and so sure enough, here in uh, 33, um, a fugitive comes and says to Ezekiel that the temple has been destroyed. In the twelfth year of our exile, in the tenth month, on the fifth day of the month, a fugitive from Jerusalem came to me and said, the city has been struck down. Now the hand of the Lord had been upon me the evening before the fugitive came, and he had opened my mouth by the time the man came to me in the morning. So my mouth was opened and I was no longer mute. And the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, the inhabitants of these waste places in the land of Israel keep saying, Abraham was only one man, yet he got possession of the land. But we are many, the land is surely given to us to possess. Therefore say to them, thus says the Lord God, you eat flesh with the blood and you lift up your eyes to idols and shed blood. Shall you possess the land? You rely on the sword, you commit abominations, and each of you defiles his neighbor's wife. Shall you then possess the land? Say this to them, thus says the Lord God, as I live, surely those who are in the waste places shall fall by the sword. And whoever is in the open field, I will give to the beasts to be devoured. So the, so the choice of the, of the people in, 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 in Jerusalem was to, 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 to turn to power, to live by the sword. And God struck them down. And here we, we hear a, a remarkable, um, that, that remarkably, the prophecy of uh, Ezekiel was fulfilled. Now, I don't know about you, but if there are people who are, you know, standing on a street corner and they're shouting that the end is near and, and everything's going to, you know, I tend to say, show me that what you said in the past turned true, you know, and then, I'll, then maybe I'll consider it. Well, now that the fugitive has come from Jerusalem and has said, just like Ezekiel said, the temple's been destroyed, everybody comes and they say, well, we got to listen to this guy now, right? We should have been listening to him all along. He was right. And it's fascinating the way that, 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 that the, the prophet Ezekiel, this book, describes this. It describes how they all come and they, and they sit before him and, and, it, and, and it says, um, uh, and they come, this is the Lord speaking to Ezekiel, and they come to you as people come and they sit before you as my people and they hear what you say, but they do not do it. For with lustful talk in their mouths they act, their heart is set on their gain. And behold, you're like, you are to them like one who sings lustful songs with a beautiful voice and plays well on an instrument. For they hear what you say, but they do not do it. So even then, they're like, oh, this is the, this is the prophet. And they all come and, wow, I saw Hamilton. I saw the amazing musical. And they don't even, you know, they, they're on their phones the whole time. You know? That's exactly what happens to uh, the people afterwards. And so Ezekiel speaks this word of condemnation upon the shepherds. Uh, well, upon the, he, he says, you are like shepherds who do not care for the sheep. And if you're like a shepherd who doesn't care for the sheep, you really, you don't have a leg to stand on. That's, that's your one job, is care for the sheep. And, and they're not doing it. You are like shepherds who don't care for the sheep. But the amazing thing is right here, even though Ezekiel has this message, he repeats himself, he says, the Lord uh, knows that you're, you're letting 
his people down, and you are a deceitful generation that you've turned away from the things that, that made you best as my chosen people. You're worshiping idols. You're doing unrighteous deeds. He says this remarkable... He, he, suddenly, he just remarkably, he changes his tune a little bit. And, 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 it's, and it says here, and this, is, this is at the end of 34... Therefore, thus says the Lord God to them, Behold, I myself will judge between the fat sheep and the lean sheep, because you push with side and shoulder and thrust at all the weak with your horns till you have scattered them abroad. I will rescue my flock. They shall no longer be a prey, and I will judge between sheep and sheep, and I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God. And my servant, David, shall be a prince among them. I am the Lord. I have spoken. Now, David is, of course, the great king of Israel. He is the best of, of, of the line in, in terms of the tradition, right? And here, this language... He's not described as, I'm going to give you King David again. I'm going to give you someone of the Davidic line. I'm going to give you a shepherd who's going to rule over my people who have been let down by the, by the shepherds that they have in the present age. I'm going to give them a servant of the line of Jacob and to call, uh, of the line of David. I don't know where I'm... Anyway, Jacob's in there too, but, but we're, what we're excited about is David. That really narrows it down. So... Um, and so what, we, what, what this evokes, this choice of the word servant to describe a king, that's such a weird thing in the Bible. But what it, what it takes us right to is, is, I mean, at least what it takes me to, and so I'm taking you there with me because that's how this works. Um, but chapter 42 of Isaiah, we hear, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. This, my friends, is the suffering servant. This is the bruised reed. Does this not take you to Jesus Christ on the cross? Does this not show you that, that Jesus is the servant, not the king in the way that everyone expects, but the servant in the Davidic line who's going to come? And what does Jesus say? He says, I am the good shepherd. My lambs know my voice. I am the good shepherd. Now, if you know the prophet Ezekiel, when you hear, I'm the good shepherd, you know, it's like, hmm, that's an interesting metaphor. Wait a second. We were told we were promised a good shepherd. This is an amazing promise that, that Ezekiel moves from uh, uh, all this condemnation, which is just and right, and says, I am going to save, um, that, 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 that he says on behalf of the Lord, I am going to save my people that I'm going to save them through a servant of the line of David. And so 
why does he do this? I mean, I mean it's, it's such a, it's, it seems like such an, an abrupt uh, change. And he tells, I think this is, this is something that may very well have been on, on Ezekiel's mind as well. But the, because the Lord says to him, um, Son of man, when the house of Israel lived in their own land, they defiled it by their ways and their deeds. Their ways before me um, were unclean. So I poured out my wrath upon them for the blood that they had shed in the land, for the idols with which they had defiled it. I scattered them among the nations, and they were dispersed through the countries. In accordance with their ways and their deeds, I judged them. But when they came to the nations, wherever they came, they profaned my holy name. And the people said of them, these are the people of the Lord, and yet they had to go out of his land. But I had concern for my holy name, which the house of Israel had profaned among the nations to which they came. Out of concern for my holy name, out of concern, God is still invested in this wayward people. Even when we are wayward people, even when we fall short, even when we think we're showing God a fist, God still has concern for us. It never goes away. And he says, through the prophet Ezekiel here, he says, Therefore say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. I will take you from the nations, and I will gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land, and I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness and all your idols. I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. What a promise. Does that sound familiar at all, though? To be promised a land, to be sprinkled with water, to be made clean, right? To, to be, uh, to, you know, what's the Greek word? Baptizo, right? It's where we get the word baptism. To be cleaned through water. And what does God say? I'm going to give you a new mind. Now, uh, uh, oh, sorry, I say mind because I read the Old Testament, and when I see heart, I read mind because that's what they meant. Um, <laughs> But we tend to think of the heart as the locus of, of, of emotions. But really, throughout the Old Testament, when people are talking about hearts, you know, have you ever heard about, who, who, does anyone have a, it's Father's Day, do any of you fathers have children who got really into mummies? Or maybe you're into mummies yourselves? What did the, well, gosh, that's, the, oh boy. Oh, all right. Um, what I need to say is the Egyptian buddies, mummies, okay? But what did they do? They, they went in, and what was the one thing they didn't save in the mummies? No, they did. They, darn it. I set you up for that. I'm so sorry. It was their brains. <laughs> they took the brains right out and they just threw them out. They thought that stuff is stupid gunk that's in the head. And they saved the, they saved the heart. That's where you do your thinking. So the ancient world, your brain is just a bunch of gunk that gets in the way when you, you know, hit your head. I mean, it's, your heart is where you do your thinking. So, so, so God is saying, I am going to give you a new understanding, right? That's what happens when people encounter Jesus, right? They get a new understanding. 
And Thomas, right? Thomas was, a, he doubted after Jesus was raised, right? He said, I, I don't know until I put my, but he gets an understanding from the experience of putting his hands in the wounds, right? He gets a new heart. He gets a new mind where he says, God has the power to raise from the dead. And he's done it on my behalf that I might have life, right? So a new heart. And then a new spirit. What happens in the Acts of the Apostles? Right at the, you don't have to get far in the book. If you're ambitious, gosh, at the end of the book, you're like, we, our Bible study should not have picked Acts. This is long. We should have split it up, maybe. It's long. And, and, but at the very beginning, you can easily get to this. What's the, one of the first things that happens? Second chapter of Acts. The spirit comes upon the apostles. They get a new spirit, the spirit of God. Um, and they can do amazing things through the power of the Spirit. Um, and, and this is, so, so that's, you know, that, that's there. Um, and, 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 and then there's, there's, there's something about, do you remember that one of the, since I said something that inadvertently that was a little naughty, perhaps we should look at um, 1 Corinthians 6, 19. Do you remember this verse? This is a favorite verse of people who are, are upset about things. Um, it's, it's about, um, so, so he says, uh, what did I say? I said it was 619. I was going to talk about the other one, but because I said that, I feel like I owe it to God. All right. Um, <laughs> 619. Okay. So he's talking about, I'll start at 18. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from your God. You're not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Your body is the temple. What are we told? We're told in Ezekiel that the temple, that God has departed the temple. God puts a new spirit in believers, making us tabernacles of his spirit. He makes us, in a way, the new temple. Um, and And... and and, and, and Christians, early Christians really believed this. They, they you know, the, the, I mean, it's in the Bible, but they, they were, Emperor Julian, who was a very clever emperor in the, in the Roman Empire in the, in the fourth century, he was a Neoplatonic, and he's kind of, he was sort of the guy who's going to uh, reform paganism and make it palatable to, the, you know, he's going to do a little paganism reformation. And he was tired of these Christians, and he figured, well, the best thing I can do is arrange for the temple in Jerusalem to be rebuilt, right? It had been destroyed by the Roman Empire. Because if there's a temple in Jerusalem once again, then the Christians can't go on about how they are temples for the Holy Spirit. <laughs> because I built them a temple and I said, that's where he belongs. Not in you guys, there. Right? And it fails miserably. But that, does, that happens after the canon of Scripture is closed. So you just have to read the history and find out how God worked then. So all of this is to say that the new spirit brings the presence of the living God into our lives. Now, if anyone's a contrarian, and I hope you are, because I'm a big contrarian myself, um, you might be thinking, all right, well, our bodies are like temples for the Holy Spirit, but didn't Jesus Christ say something about being a temple? Wasn't it? What happened when they tried him? Um, so in John's Gospel, right at the beginning, in the Gospel of John, Jesus comes out and says this. Jesus is so much clearer in the Gospel of John. In, in the synoptics, he's always hiding stuff from people and 
and it, and it makes you work for it. And, and, and John, he tells you right out the bat, what does he say in the, in, in, in sec, uh, in the, in the second chapter, in the 19th verse? He says, um, well, I better look at it because I've forgotten the exact words. Um, but uh, he says, ah, yes. Um, so the Jews said to him, and he'd been disputing with them all, uh, what signs do you show us for doing these things? And Jesus answered to them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And the Jews said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? But Jesus was speaking of the temple, about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. And I, I love that in Mark's gospel, right, when they come and accuse him of being a blasphemer, they say, he said he would destroy the temple built with human hands, and he would raise up a new temple not built with hands, right? Well, we're baptized into life with Christ. We, we are baptized into his death. We're made new creations in Christ. The Spirit, when we, when we have that new heart, that new understanding about who God is, who Jesus is, about how we're forgiven through his life and death and being raised, that, that we're forgiven. Well, the forgiven part is the death, but then that there's life after you're forgiven too. That's an important part, right? He's raised. And so we become, we have the new spirit that God promises to Ezekiel. Now, Josephus, Josephus ring any bells? I just like to throw out, I taught Latin in middle school, and the, and the Boys would always ask me, I was at this, this uh, boarding school up in the day, when are we ever going to use this, Mr. McCarthy? And I lied to them and I said, you're not, <laughs> but you're going to have to learn it now. But the truth is, if they come to this class, I like to, it's like my little way to get back at them. You know, it's to try to make everyone have to sweat a little bit about, about classical antiquity. But Josephus was a leading uh, uh, Jewish scholar. And he's very famous because he is one of, uh, one of the few places where we hear in an independent source from the Gospels about the resurrection. Um, and there's all sorts of disputes. Well, maybe they put that in later. You know, it's typical of scholars. But anyhow, Josephus says that Ezekiel, that the book of Ezekiel, he's talking about, you know, this book that we're discussing today, was distributed in two, there were two books of Ezekiel. So that, that leaves us with a couple of options, right? One is that there's just an Ezekiel out there that God didn't see fit to inspire to be in the canon of the Bible. And it just went away. And another is that actually... Um, Ezekiel has this funny section at the end. And it's the kind of thing, I, one of my favorite things to do as a personal tick is always mention Moby Dick in classes because I love Moby Dick. I think it's great. Um, Moby Dick, how many read it? Anyone? Okay, no shame if you haven't, but read it. It's good. And, and now, now I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands, but remember those chapters where he always talks about the science of whales, the catology chapters in Moby Dick? And you're like, Melville, this is the great American novel and he's just on about how whales have bones here and there. I mean, it's just, what does this have to do with the story? Now, the tendency is to skip that stuff. But if you pay attention to stuff like that, you actually learn a lot. And, 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 and because actually, one of the fun things is that Melville was being figurative. He wasn't a great marine biologist. He was no more of a marine biologist than George Costanza is at the end of that episode. You know what I'm talking about? <laughs> right? So uh, here... Uh, you know, here, here, here Melville is making things up about whales, 
to, to, to show symbolism about what's going on. And if you read it closely, oh my goodness, he buries all this good stuff in it. But that's, I'm not here to teach on Melville, I'm here to teach on Ezekiel. Ezekiel at the end, the 40th chapter, there's this whole section from chapters 40 to 48 that are all about a vision he has of a new temple of God. A new temple. And, um, and, and this is kind of crazy because I'm going to say some things that are just my nutty thoughts. Um, so don't, try, you know, don't ask what commentary I got it from because I pulled it out of my head. But um, I'm sure someone said it, right? Because it's the Bible. Someone said everything that there is to say, it seems. But um, in, uh, in, this, in, in this vision that he has from chapters 40 uh, to 48, uh, he, he says, um, well, I'll just read here. In the 25th year of our exile, at the beginning of the year, on the 10th day of the month, in the 14th year, after the city was struck down, which is to say halfway through our time in exile, halfway through, on that very day, the hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me to the city. In visions of God, he brought me to the land of Israel, and he set me down on a very high mountain on which was a structure like a city to the south. Okay? That strikes, that's really weird, right? A city to the south. But, but he doesn't say there's a temple. This is why I hate these little, you know, these, they're these little things that they put in between to tell you what everything is, you know. And so it says right here above chapter 40, the vision of the new temple. And so you think, oh, this is all about the temple. Well, he says a city here. He doesn't say a temple. Later, he uses language to describe things. He, he does employ the word temple. But at the very beginning, he says it's like a city. Um, and, and, and so, quick, quick, quick thing. This, is this the temple that is built later on? Because, of course, they do come back into the land. It's a great story for another time about how God brings them back in and raises up a new temple. And, of course, that's the temple that the Romans destroy, right? Uh, that's the temple where when Jesus died, what happened? The curtain is torn in two. And it's almost like it reminds me, at least, of the presence of God leaving the temple that we heard about in Ezekiel, right? That what was dividing is torn asunder. It's as if God's not even in the temple anymore. And then it's destroyed. Well, you know, big whoop. It, God left. God died on a cross on Calvary. <laughs> the temple's destroyed, you know. Um, I don't mean to make light of it, but really. Um, so, so here we have this vision of a high, high mountain. So it's not that temple because it, the, the highest places in Jerusalem are 2,500 feet above sea level. I looked that up because uh, I'm a... I'm a uh, I, it was looked up for me, I'll be honest. But is that a commentary I read? I think that's cool. So it's not, a very high, it's not a very high mountain at all, right? So this is a kind of figurative vision. There's another thing that really should tip us off. In 47, I am going to let you out because I have to celebrate the service coming in. But in the 47th chapter, it talks all about how there was water flowing from the temple. Now, there was not a stream that was flowing water forward that was getting bigger and bigger and bigger in that second temple, right? In, in, in Jerusalem. This is a figurative image. And it says that there are 12 gates. This is a numerology. This is always fun. Always pay attention to the numbers in the Bible. I, th I think it'll tell you something. There are 12 gates, which sort of re resembles 12 tribes, right? Or later we have, what, 12, 12 apostles? And then everything else is a multiple of five, which is really strange because usually they like seven as a number of completion. And I know I can see the eyes glazing over. I shouldn't have gone into numerology. That may have been a mistake, but I'll just complete, I'll just complete the sentence. Uh, five books of the law. 
Jesus says in the Gospel of Matthew, I have come to fulfill the law, right? Stephen, are you saying that this new temple is Jesus? Well, maybe. Let's turn, and this is where we'll end. Let's turn to Revelation. And there too, John of Patmos has a vision. He has a vision of a city. And what does he say? He says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. <laughs> and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And it describes a city that has no temple because the city is lit by the presence of Jesus Christ that we become part of the temple, right, in that vision, that we, all the sinful things that cause us to, 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 to obscure the Holy Spirit in us, right, all those things fall away, and we become the dwelling place for the living God in the new Jerusalem, in the new city. Jesus says, I have come to fulfill the law. So, so, so he, he says, that he, so I was going back to the numerology. I shouldn't have done that. That was a mistake. Um, but it's in there. And, 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 and 12, the number 12 is all over Revelation. It's all over. And, and they describe that there are, you know, there's, there's, there's three gates to the north, three, three to the east, three to, so you end up with the number 12. 12 all over. In Leviticus, the bread of the presence, which is the sign, bread, in which we experience the presence of God. That sounds kind of familiar, right? Um, the bread of the presence is in the temple and there are 12 loaves there. That, that the number, so as we have the sense in which what's being pointed to is a new temple, the temple that is Jesus Christ. Destroy this temple, I will raise it up. And Jesus, in his mercy and in his love, doesn't just raise up the temple for himself. For the sake of his holy name, he includes each and every one of us, giving us a new heart and a new spirit, that we too might be part of the tabernacle of God here in this world and surely in the world to come. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this time to open your uh, holy scriptures. Um, thank you for giving us a new heart and putting a new spirit in us. Lord, we thank you for that gift. We cherish it. Open our eyes that we might see with that new heart, that we might see that all of the glory of creation speaks to the power of your holy name. And we thank you and we praise you that through Jesus Christ, you have chosen to glorify your name by loving us, by forgiving us, and by promising us the waters of eternal life. Amen.